You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. But she did marvelously, didn't she? All right, good morning. My name is Nick Lipscomb, and I'm one of the lay pastors here at Sojourn Montrose. And it is very nice to be with you on this sunny morning. Today we begin our journey through the book of Jonah, and quite a journey it is, as you've probably just realized as we read through it. And I do want to point out that we decided to preach Jonah back at the beginning of 2023 when we set our preaching calendar. However, the timing couldn't be better as we carry momentum from our Make Disciples class and from the last two sermons that Reed and Cole preached on prayer and prophecy, respectively, into the autumnal season. And I'm sure you're wondering, what does he mean? What is he talking about? Um, So let's first address the whale in the room. Uh, Is the story of Jonah real? Or is it a metaphor? Is it a historical account? And I'll tell you right now, for the purposes of this sermon, I will be clear and I will not belabor it. We do believe that this is an account that actually happened. We believe it is not just a symbol or a metaphor, although there are symbols and metaphors to be enjoyed. um, But we believe that if God can raise a man from the dead, then he can really do anything, which includes camping in the belly of a fish for three days. So we believe it happened, and we believe there's much to learn from that, both historically, uh, figuratively, literally, metaphorically, symbolically, all of the above. Now, given that this is a real account of an actual event, there remains another basic question. What is the point? What is the point of Jonah's story? Is it just a silly story? Is it just silly songs, like the pirates who don't do anything? Okay, so it's loosely covered by a silly song. Um, And it's also found in the Jesus Storybook Bible, so it must have some significance, right? Uh, actually, more importantly, it's, it's the Word of God. <laughs> and that is the only true reason we need to pay attention to what it says and see what there is to learn. So over the next four weeks, we are going to see that Jonah is filled with irony, satire, humor, justice, repentance, violently shifting moods, and seemingly unstable behavior from our lead character. The author of Jonah truly spun a literary masterpiece through the finger of God and through a beautifully constructed historical account. Again, this is real. The readers are taught several key lessons of which we will explore today and in the coming weeks. So before we dive in, I do want to open up with some questions that are addressed explicitly and implicitly in the content of Jonah's story. And I think to me, some of the key questions that come out of this book are, who can be saved? Who is worthy of being saved? Is anyone too far gone from being saved? How can God be merciful to evil people and still be just and faithful? And what does the mission of Jonah tell us about the mission of God? So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Lord, thank you for this text today, and thank you for the opportunity to talk about something that is, feels too grand for us sometimes, something that probably has a lot of nostalgia if we grew up in the church, something that we may have never encountered before if we've never read this story. Um, I pray that through these words and through the text itself that you would show us your heart and show us what it means to be on mission together, and not just any mission, but your mission. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. As mentioned, the book of Jonah is both a historical account and a literary masterpiece. Its its actual narrative and sentence structure are poetic in nature, and for that reason, in many ways, it reads like a play, which is why I asked Caitlin to read it that way, um, or a novel in two acts. So in both acts, the structure is follows. And when I mean acts, I mean chapter 1 and 2 are an act, and chapter 3 and 4 feel like an act. And in both of those, the structure is God's word and direction comes to Jonah. Jonah responds to that. The word is presented to an audience, the audience responds, and the writer makes it clear that the audience response is better than Jonah's response in both cases. And then the writer shows how God teaches grace to Jonah through supernatural 
or nature-based events. In the first half, it's the fish. In the second half, it'll be a plant that we learn about. Um, so with any play, one of the key things that we're left to ask is, who are the players? So let's start with our eponymous anti-hero, Jonah. And why do I say anti-hero? Or anti-hero? One of the beautiful aspects of the Bible as a history is that it doesn't embellish upon or bathe its characters in flattering light when it is not due. So apart from Jesus, the true and only one who was not sinful in any way, when stories are told, the writers of the Bible do not leave out the dirty laundry or closet skeletons. David's failure with Bathsheba is famously recorded. Abraham tried to pass off his wife as his sister to avoid confrontation. Moses was a killer. Jacob was a thief. Um, and let's not fail to mention all the evil kings that Israel and Judah endured through the recordings of First and Second Kings and the Chronicles. And Jonah is no exception. Taking in the whole context of Jonah's story, it's laughable how in pretty much every circumstance, all of Jonah's actions are a big fail. <laughs> and yet God shows him grace and mercy. And there's something to that. So in both Act 1 and Act 2, Jonah experiences public humili humiliation in the face of pagans who don't know the ways of Yahweh. And not every prophet of the Old Testament experienced public favor, but generally speaking, as Cole taught us last week, prophets served as the mouthpiece of God to the people of Israel and were thus given a high honor. They advised kings and rulers, and they called wayward communities to repent and return to the Lord. The prophetic office was primarily an office and role of proclamation, and prophets in the Old Testament were proclaimers of the goodness and holiness of God, the covenant obligations of God's people. They denounced injustice, idolatry, and empty ritualism. They called Israel to repentance, and they warned of God's judgment. This is what a prophet was supposed to do in the Old Testament. And you can probably guess that because these prophets were preaching these things, they knew God, like they understood God. They were the mouthpiece of God in this case. They knew his ways, his character, and his heart, and insofar as it was revealed to them, this is what they were preaching. And to wit, Jonah, in spite of himself, does fulfill many of these objectives and tasks in his story. But as far as we can tell, Jonah either rebelled against or stumbled through his role as prophet through the whole story. He doesn't sound like the picture of a prophet of God. So what's the deal? Let's talk about some context. So in Jonah 1.1, he identifies our prophet as the son of Amittai. Likewise, in 2 Kings... 14, 23-27, it says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned forty-one years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from gath Hefer, For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bonder free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So what is this thing? Throughout the recorded history of the kings of Israel, there were ongoing conflicts with other nations. We read about it all the time. And in this particular account, Jonah prophesied that Israel's borders would be restored and expanded under the leadership of Jeroboam II. And from what we know about the landmarks and locations described in this text, this was against the Assyrian Empire. Additionally, although we're given, we aren't given great detail, we can deduce that border expansion and restoration is in congruence with general peace and prosperity of the expanding nation. Historical context tells us that at this time, Assyria was not an immediate threat, so Jonah's prophecy is good news. 
It is prosperous. It was victory for Israel, and through the expansion of the border, it was likely viewed as God's passive judgment against Assyria, meaning Israel gets more land, more power, more fame, and Assyria gets less of all of that. Assyria is the enemy, and they get what they deserve. But note that this was all in response to God seeing the affliction of Israel, and God remembered his promise to not let Israel perish. So as it says in 2 Kings, he saved them. It wasn't a grand display of nationalism. It wasn't a huge military victory or the sheer will of the Israelites to make themselves great. It was God's mercy, plain and simple. And to that end, what was the relationship between Israel and the nations in the Old Testament in general? In Exodus 19.6, Yahweh tells Israel, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. An entire kingdom of priests, literally. God's design for Israel was the not yet fully revealed design for his church. To proclaim his excellencies to those in darkness, to proclaim the goodness, grace, and mercy of God to the nations. And to that end, in the Old Testament, there was at least a latent understanding of that purpose, as we will see in a lot of psalms I'm about to read. 9-11, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. 18-49, for this I'll praise you, O Lord, among the nations to sing your name. 33-8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. 46-10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. 57-9, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. 66-5, come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. And here, directly in Psalm 96.3, the people were instructed to declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Do we get the point? Israel was supposed to be for the nations. To put it succinctly, the revelation of Yahweh to the other was not passive, but an active and core function of Israel's supposed identity. And to that end, we have biblical accounts of conversion with regards to Old Testament theology. We see Ruth swearing allegiance to Naomi and through that relationship to Yahweh. Ruth was not an Israelite. Jesus himself speaks of Naaman the Syrian, who experienced conversion at the testimony of a captured Israelite servant girl. Jeremiah, Daniel, Elisha, Amos, etc., all preach words of repentance and turning towards Yahweh, either towards entire nations or leaders of such places. In each example, there is a pattern of heart transformation, faith in Yahweh's self-revelation, abandonment of former gods, and genuine repentance from sin. So what do we take from this is that God cared about the nations. Yes, Israel were his people, but that wasn't it. He didn't stop there. He wanted to see the nations come in repentance and know him. So do we think, after all that, that God cares about the nations? The answer is yes. Does he care about the strangers? Does he care about the foreigners? The, let's call it all collective others, non-Israelites, other people, Gentiles. In Jonah's day, this core theological purpose for the nation of Israel would have at least been known, if not practiced, and it might have been ignored, but no reasonable Israelite or Israelite leader could claim ignorance towards this directive. They can't say, I don't know about that. For God to command Jonah... To go to another nation would not have been scandalous, and it wouldn't have been absurd. It would have been in his identity, and his identity as a prophet. And I think this is relevant to our congregation, right? I'm confident that if we polled everyone in our church and in this room and asked the question, is mission fundamental to Orthodox Christianity, or is it one of our key purposes as the people of God? I think everyone here would answer yes. And some maybe do it emphatically. Yes, of course it is. Of course it is our job as the people of God to be on mission to the nations. And yet I know we also humbly listed a host of fears 
and barriers to that call about a month ago in this very room on a whiteboard that was right here. So like Jonah, like the Israelites, we aren't ignorant to the call, but sometimes for various reasons we resist it. We choose not to do it. So what was Jonah's problem? What was his hang-up? Let's introduce another player in this drama, the Ninevites. Now let us recall, in 2 Kings, Jonah prophesied against Assyria, and Israel was victorious in the time of Jeroboam II. For context's sake, fast forward six generations to 2 Kings 17.6. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria. So here's the big reveal, the big plot unfolding. Nineveh, which is about 500, 600 miles northeast of Jerusalem, was the royal dwelling of the Assyrian Empire. That's right, perhaps not an official capital in the time of Jonah, but nonetheless a seat of power, of military might and activity. Nineveh, by reputation of the leaders of the Assyrian Empire, was known to be brutal, merciless, exceedingly nasty towards its enemies. A ruler of the Assyrian Empire, Asher Nasser Apwe II, was recorded to say, I flayed many right through my land and draped their skins over the walls. <laughs> I brought Ahi Yababa, the ruler of Suru, to Nineveh, flayed him, and draped his skin over the wall of Nineveh. And this brutality was justified by the belief that it was the God-King's divine right and destiny to subdue the surrounding nations. So much so that nations, including Israel, from time to time in her history, usually paid tribute to avoid the bloodbath. So, do we feel a little sympathy for Jonah? Maybe. Jonah, the prophet who had recently prophesied victory over the Syrians gets the call from God to directly confront another god king. You're asking me to do what? To go where? To talk to who? No, not me. Not me, God. I am not going there. You just told me that we are going to be victorious against them, and you want me to go preach repentance to them? I see that guy's skin on the wall. <laughs> I'm not going. So what do you think really fueled Jonah's rebellion? Was it a simple fear of the Assyrians? Maybe. Was it fear of being made a fool in front of his own people? You just said that we were going to win against the Assyrians. Was it a belief that the Assyrians simply did not deserve mercy? What if they actually repent? Maybe Jonah believed that God's plan did not include any joy and good for Jonah. Jonah's thinking, what's in this for me? If I do this thing that God is asking me to do, I can't see any way in which that will be helpful or valuable to me. What if Jonah had simply just said, I just don't have time. I don't have time for that. Or, I don't know what to say. I don't have the words. Or maybe he might have just said, they're just not going to like me. They're not going to like me. They're going to hate me. They might kill me. These are all reasonable things I think that Jonah might have felt that, I mean, if we're honest about it, I think that we feel that way sometimes. There may not be a literal Nineveh, but there's certainly a fear and resistance to doing the things that God has asked us to do. So what does Jonah do in response to some or all of these scenarios? Okay, so let's get a little geographical reference. Joppa is on the western coast of Israel, and we don't know where Jonah was at the time that he got the call, but he was, if he was in his hometown of gath then his trip down the coast would have been essentially southwestern in direction, making it truly the exact opposite direction from Nineveh. Nineveh's up here, Joppa's down here. 
Furthermore, history has not left us with a clear understanding as to where Tarshish was, but scholars agree it was certainly west of Israel, very far west, and likely somewhere on the Mediterranean coast, so maybe even Spain. So if you're picturing a map, it's literally across the entire Mediterranean, Gibraltar, like that area. And it is a city that's actually referenced in Jeremiah 10.9, and it is a place where silver is refined. And 2 Chronicles 9.21 says, For the king's ships went to Tarshish with the servants of Hiram. Once every three years, the ships of Tarshish used to come, used to, come to bring gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Bottom line, Tarshish was not just sufficiently far away from Nineveh. It was likely exceedingly far from Nineveh. Really, for all practical purposes, as far away from Nineveh as Jonah could go in the exact opposite direction. So given our contextual clues, was, it was also likely a place of wealth and comfort. Silver, gold. Who doesn't love a peacock? There is an, absurdism here, uh, excuse me, there is an absurdism here that the author of Jonah is putting on full display. And the words were chosen carefully. For the text, it says twice in verse 3 that Jonah had his sights on Tarshish to go away from the presence of the Lord. So now we're kind of cluing into what was his real reason for not going. This is Jonah, who would have been familiar with Psalm 139, a psalm of David that would precede him by many generations. Verse 7 through 10, verse 7, 10, verse 7 through 10 says, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea... Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall behold me. And let me point out that the Hebrew word for presence in both Jonah and Psalm 139 literally means face, the face of God. So now it starts to feel a little bit more personal, doesn't it? And this is at the heart of Jonah's rebellion. I don't think it was so much the scary Ninevites. It's still a factor, no doubt. But the text says that Jonah's response to God's call was primarily rooted in wanting to flee his presence or simply get away from his face, to get away from God, to reject God, to deny his authority, but even more so to reject his friendship and his care and his intimacy. I suspect that many in the room can relate. We intellectually acknowledge that God is always in the room. But when our desire for our own sin, our own comfort, or our own autonomy comes into play, we, like my two-year-old son, may cover our eyes with our hands and say, no looking at me. No looking at me, Daddy. And yet, I am there, trying to be patient, but also feeling anger. And maybe even a little bit more layered down, like, I'm hurt. I don't, I really don't like it when he says stuff like that. I delight in my son, and when he tells me not to look at him, he is saying, I don't want to see your face. And man, that stings a little bit. In our rebellion, we quench the spirit, like we discussed in the last two weeks. We ignore God's word, his people, his mission. We would rather throw a fit. We would rather go down to Joppa and seek our fortune elsewhere. And to keep the analogy going, the absurd thing is that in those tantrums thrown by a two-year-old, they're usually a response to a misunderstanding of what good thing is actually coming. For instance, when I say it's time to get in the car to go somewhere, it's often treated like the worst possible thing that could ever happen. No looking at me! But really, all we're doing is going to see a friend <laughs> or going to the grocery store, which he loves, or to get ice cream or to go to a grandparent's house. These are all good things, and Winston doesn't believe that my command to get in the car is actually good for him, and so he rebels and, in essence, covers his eyes, flees from my presence, and he rejects my face, 
And now we feel a little bit like Jonah, don't we? But what do I do in this scenario as a dad? Despite my feeling hurt or angry, a greater emotion, a more important emotion, core to my identity as a dad that has been given to me by a better father, takes over, and I love him. And I pick him up, and I hold him. And hold Jonah, God does. Perhaps by the scruff of the neck. For God holds good on the promise of his character. Jonah, who would dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea through the belly of the fish, was not being chased by God in the sense that God was just trying to catch up. No, in fact, the author of Jonah makes it clear that God was already a step ahead of Jonah by sending, no, hurling like a dodgeball. A great wind to Jonah. He met him there. He was always there. The depths of the sea, Sheol, the land, the sky. Where shall we go to free from your presence? And here we're introduced to yet another player in this story, the Gentile mariners. Strictly speaking, these were hired hands, simply making a living, and yet they physically become caught up in this epic drama between Yahweh and Jonah. And so of no fault of their own, still their response is striking on threat of death by a sinking ship. They, in verse 5, each cry out to his own God. Their first appeal is to a higher being. And in fact, the captain himself says, Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Does Jonah do that, though? No, he doesn't repent, nor does he even call out to God. He's still covering his eyes. No looking at me. Through the casting of lots, which clearly the hand of God directed, the sailors discover that Jonah is indeed the root cause of this trouble. They ask him some probing questions, and Jonah responds, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Does he, though? I don't really, I don't get that sense. It doesn't seem as such. Regardless, Jonah does, in spite of himself, does actually testify in a powerful way to these Gentile mariners. So even though through his best efforts, he's actually still preaching the word. And study of an ancient, like general studies of ancient pagan religions show us that it was common for gods to be in control, little g gods, over like one thing, one force of nature, a sea god, a river god, a mountain god. So when Jonah describes Yahweh as the God who rules over the heavens, the land, and the sea, he's essentially saying that Yahweh is in control of everything. And God says the same about himself. Psalm 135, 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. And so what do the mariners do? What is their response? They are afraid, and they appeal to Jonah for guidance. Verse 11, they ask him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet for us? And Jonah tells them what? Jonah doesn't say, let me talk to God. Let me pray. Let's work this out. I know that I'm at fault. I should probably just repent. No, that's not in his mind. He actually just says, kill me. (laughs) Throw me into the sea. And really, the mariners, to their credit, they try even harder to get back to land first. They don't immediately throw in there. They're like, cool, you're out. No, they say, no, let's try to get back to the land. Their first thought is not to shed blood, and their final appeal is actually to Yahweh. Verse 14, therefore they called out to Yahweh, O Lord Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So at the very last ditch effort, they pick up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord, Yahweh, exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. So in other words, in spite of Jonah's rebellion, through the power of Yahweh, Gentile sailors experience Old Testament-style conversion. Their hearts were transformed. They seemingly abandoned their gods, little g-gods, by making sacrifices to Yahweh. And then they make vows, which in effect is repentance and turning from their former ways. And just so we know, this actually happened before the storm even calmed. 
It shows that they both acknowledge and are in awe of him, not for the benefit they would receive, but simply because who he had revealed himself to be. So in Jonah telling them that this is Yahweh, the God over everything, they say, we get it. Have mercy on us. And that's the response that we were looking for, right? But let's look at Jonah's behavior and attitude through all of this. And there's some key words that the author of Jonah uses in repetition to draw comparison and put out signposts, so to speak. In the beginning of our story, God tells Jonah to arise. Then later, the Gentile captain tells Jonah to arise, call out to your God. Instead, and throughout this whole thing, Jonah goes down to Joppa, down into the inner part of the ship, laid down and was fast asleep. The sailors asked, what should, we do to you? what should we do to you that the sea may quiet down? And Jonah replies that after he is killed, the sea will quiet down. God's response to Jonah's rebellion is to hurl a great wind, a mighty tempest. And the sailors hurl Cargo overboard. Jonah commands the Gentile sailors to hurl him into the sea, and after trying everything else and after appealing to Yahweh, they pick up Jonah and hurl him into the sea. If it feels like it's supposed to be violent, you're right, it is. It is meant to convey the sense of just visceral movement. So we see this wayward and rebellious prophet, the reluctant prophet. We see him not understanding the grace of God. And so despite being offered chances to repent, repent and submit to God, to arise and to speak and meet God face to face, Jonah's best idea is to sate the deep, to quench the angry storm, to pay the price for his rebellion by having others kill him. So we see Jonah fleeing, 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 and it hits what he thinks is a point, and he hits what he thinks is a point of no return and decides that it's best to just die. I can't help but think, do we ever think that our situation is so hopeless that we just want to give up? Just quit. And maybe we're not talking about literal death here, but for instance, in ministry, nobody wants to come to my parish. I think I just want to give up. It's too hard. I've tried talking with this person a hundred times, and they just don't get it. I think I'm done. What we're being asked to do is too hard. We can't do it. And let me tell you, this is me. I, I have felt that way. Even recently, I have felt tired and started pouting. And God, like an arrow, sends his words to me. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And I think that giving up can be equated to spiritual death. Not the final and total death. Not complete separation from God. But we experience death-like things when we say words like that. And where do the dead go? In much of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, the sea is often a metaphor for the grave. In Jonah's view, the watery grave is satisfied when it claims a body. I'm giving up. I'm giving death what it wants. I'm giving the grave what it wants. I'm going to give myself over to that, and it'll be over. And so from the moment he sets forth towards Joppa, Jonah was marching down, down, down to his final destination to give up on the floor of the sea, the grave. And isn't this ironic? Jonah's original mission was to preach repentance to some scary people. And although we don't cover chapters 2, 3, and 4 today, part of the reason is because he doesn't think they deserve the chance to repent. Essentially to not go to the grave, to not be on the sea, the bottom of the sea. And there in line, Jonah's prejudices and his begrudging attitude towards sinners. And avoiding the call to mission and avoiding the opportunity to preach repentance and God's mercy to sinners, Jonah marches down towards his own destruction. And in Jonah's worldview, nobody wins. He doesn't win. The mariners don't win. 
the Ninevites don't win, they all lose. But what a beautiful picture we have here. God would not just follow him down. He would actually meet Jonah there, and although rightly terrifying, Jonah would come to experience the very mercy of God he chose to withhold from others. He questions God's justice, and in that, he experiences God's justice for himself. And God doesn't stop there. No, in the very presence of pagan sailors, God puts his character on full display. And in spite of Jonah, in spite of Jonah's anti-missionary activity, God uses the circumstances to convert pagan sailors. And Jonah still doesn't get it. The captain gives Jonah the opportunity to repent, to call out to his God, and it's not until chapter 2, after he is saved by the fish, that Jonah actually talks to God. He thinks that it would be better for him to die than to fulfill the mission that God has for him. Where can we go from his presence? No looking at me. Have you felt the call of God? That pull in a direction towards something uncomfortable or scary and thought? I'd rather suffer than do what I'm being asked. I'd rather go down with the ship. I'd rather get thrown in the sea. I can't do that thing. It's not my thing. It's not me. And here's the thing. The sailors may never have seen Jonah again. For all we know, they never even heard of his miraculous sojourn in the fish. But what we do know is that they saw God for who he was, saw God's justice, saw a man to be sacrificed for them, and thus were saved. Jonah's sin was clear to us as the readers. He was fleeing the presence of the Lord, and they learned that you can't get away from a God who is master over land, sea, and sky. They learned that this is a God who is not to be trifled with, and they saw that this God is just, and they were still wary. Let us not perish for this man's life, and, let, and lay not on us innocent blood. Yet, like I said, we know that Jonah wasn't innocent. But the sailors knew that Jonah belonged to Yahweh, and they feared what would happen if they were wrong. Jonah did not die, but they didn't know that. At least we don't think. They only knew that they were saved through Jonah's sacrifice. And so like I asked in the beginning of this, was God just and merciful in these actions? Did Jonah get what he deserved? Did the sailors get what they deserved? Were both shown mercy? There would come another prophet many generations later who would be sent not just to a hostile kingdom like Assyria, but to a hostile world. He would do so willingly, and he would fulfill the role of missionary that Jonah did not want to. His mission was his father's, and his message would be of repentance and forgiveness. He would promise healing and freedom from sin. He would promise life and life to the fullest. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He would come into the world to save sinners. About himself, he would quote Isaiah 61 and say, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And in that same prophecy, Isaiah would go on to say that through this prophet's ministry, strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. And later, as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Let me tell you another story about this prophet. One day he got in a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and they sailed, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this? 
that he commands even winds and water, the sea, to obey him. The story is recorded in Luke 8, 22-25, and Matthew and Mark also recount the same events. Notice the similarities between the disciples and the pagan sailors in Jonah. They were both afraid. They both appealed to God to avoid perishing. But the key difference is that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, no one is thrown overboard. No one is sent to a watery grave. And so we have to ask, why is this significant? Why would three writers of the Gospels make note of this story and point it out very specifically? Jonah was thrown overboard, and we were told the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jesus would later tell the crowds, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented of the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. There's clearly a connection between Jonah resting in the fish and Jesus resting in the grave. I think that that's obvious. Notably, the death and resurrection of Christ is unignorable. But there's more than just that. Jonah was sent to preach repentance to the nations. The sign of Jonah begins with a call to repentance, a faithful response, and mercy being shown to sinful people. And in this story, truly innocent blood was shed, not the blood of Jonah, but the blood of the Son of God. The fulfillment of Jonah's sign is miraculously consummated in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It is through this work that lasting and true repentance are gifted through faith and belief in the gospel message. His death for your sins, his resurrection for your life, his lordship over all creation, land, sea, sky. But Christ's work is infinitely more efficacious than Jonah's work. Nineveh repented for a time, but would eventually be destroyed, and Israel would too. It is only through the power of the Spirit, the regeneration of hearts, the lasting repentance is enjoyed amongst God's people. The sign of Jonah is more than just a reference to a fish. It is the answer to the original question that we asked, how can God be merciful to evil people and still be just and faithful? God can be merciful to evil people and still remain just and faithful if he himself is both just and the justifier. He did not need to throw himself off the boat in Luke or Matthew or Mark because he knew his path would be hurled towards Calvary. In similar language, which we have been reading every week since Pentecost, Jesus himself says, and as Moses lifted up, picture rising, lifting the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. As Christ rises up and goes down, so we go down and come up. Christ did not go down to Joppa, but was lifted up. But even more importantly, he knew that he was the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, and in both land and sea, watery or cut from the earth, he would be Lord over the grave. It is through this power that God says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We are Jonah. We are Jonah with all of his failures. We are the anti-heroes. We make one wrong turn after another, and we fail to recognize the signposts and opportunities to uncover our eyes and see the face of God. And we, like Jonah, are buried in Christ's death and arisen in Christ's resurrection. And we are commanded to wake up Arise from the grave and behold the face of Christ. Be careful not to ignore the Lord or the person that the God sent sailor, maybe, that tells you to wake up. And the beauty of the sign of Jonah is that this command to arise, to no longer sleep, is that it is for everyone. Jesus came to save them all, not just Israel, not just Judah, not just Jonah, but also Nineveh and the Gentile sailors and the Samaritans and the Greeks, and you, and your neighbors. 
the sign of Jonah is for all people for all time. So who can be saved? That's the question we ask. Who can be saved? The answer is anyone. Anyone who trusts in the redeeming work of Christ's life and his death on the cross and who believes in his arising from the grave. Daniel Timmer, who provided a commentary on Jonah, writes, No reader of this book, the book of Jonah, having been reminded of Christ's commitment to his father's mission and to the predicament of the lost, should fail to ask God humbly for forgiveness of his or her lack of passion for God's glory in Christ and for a lack of love for his or her neighbor. Don't despise your neighbor. Don't lack compassion. Who are the pagan sailors in your life right now? They can be saved. They look, act, believe differently than you. They vote differently than you. They live differently. They spend their money differently. They may be socioeconomically different but may, and may be culturally different than you. And can they be saved? The answer is yes. They can be saved. Where right now are you going down to Joppa? Where in your life are you trying to flee from the presence of the Lord, the face of the Lord? Where are we sleeping the dull sleep of complacency or outright denial? Where are we believing the lie that God's will for us, his purpose for us, will not bring good and joy to us? Where are we covering our eyes and telling God, no looking at me? Where are we acknowledging God, but not fully submitting all of our plans, resources, finances, time, and desires, our homes, our careers, to God and his purposes, to his glory, to his mission? Who are the people we need to call today after we leave? and invite them over for dinner, or to a parish gathering, or to a Sunday gathering. Arise. Let us repent of our sin. Let us see ourselves as living holy by the mercy and grace of God. Through this, we will be compelled to be effective in mission. And heed the sign of Jonah. Jonah knew God. He was a prophet. We already talked about this. And with that office, he would have known the scriptures well and see that God was good on his word. And even after all of that, Jonah did not fully trust God. He did not believe that God could be both just and merciful. He did not believe that what God called him to do, that preaching repentance to sinners was good for him or them. And so he calmly rebelled against the same God. Don't be Jonah in that case. We have these words. We have this sign. We have this repentance that's available to us. And although we are Jonah, we don't have to continue in that. Because in the same way that Jonah was saved and resurrected from the fish, so too, as Christ raised from the grave, we have been resurrected into his life. And as we are transformed into his image, we have the ability, the strength, the power to go forth into our neighborhoods and preach the good news. So let us look to Christ, to trust in him to be greater than Jonah, to be greater than ourselves. Let us rejoice that through the cross he hurled himself into the sea of judgment and wrath of God, and through his righteous sacrifice, we and our neighbors may live peacefully under his righteous reign as Lord of heaven, sea, and dry land. Let's pray.